Hello, it's Thursday, 21st of July. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will sift through the top 10 travel stories of the week across the region. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today, Hannah and I are taking stock of the big travel and tourism stories making news across Southeast Asia. So stay tuned. We've got updates from Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines, plus Brunei and Timor-Leste, which we don't talk about nearly enough. So Hannah, let's dive straight in. What's our first top story of this week and why? Well, our top story, I think, has to be Singapore and the fact that it has finally committed to some international arrival targets. You know, we we have seen lots of targets across the region, right? Thailand throwing out its 10 million, Malaysia 4.5 million, I think Vietnam is 5 million, Cambodia 1 million. But Singapore has always been very quiet about this. Um, And, you know, as we have said in the past, you know, perhaps sensibly so, because it's almost impossible to predict how things are going to play out. Um, But they have finally committed to... um, a number. And that number for 2022 is between 4 million and 6 million. And, you know, they, they've said that right now, the first half of the year, they've already seen 1.5 million, which they said, you know, is, is 12 times more than 2021. Of course, 2021, super low base, vaccinated travel lanes had just started. So that's not, you know, not necessarily something to really shout out about. But yeah, significant. They, they, they clearly must have a lot of confidence in this rebound. What do you think, Gary? I think yes, and I think no. I think it's it's quite significant that they've stated a range between four and six million. That's <clears throat> it's quite differential, isn't it? When you think about it, uh, a top level of six million, a low level of four million, which is as you say, Hannah, because it is so difficult to predict travel demand across the rest of the year. I think a couple of things that that stand out for that to me is that actually, if if you look at the top end of that range, so around about six million, that's actually only double the number of visitors that arrived in the first two months of 2020, that was 2.7 million. So, you know, the strength of this rebound is is perhaps not as strong as as the industry would like us to to, uh, believe right now. And also, even if it hits the top range, um, six million, that will be the lowest annual arrivals to Singapore if you exclude 2020 and 2021 since 2003. That's two decades ago. Good stat. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, these these numbers always look very impressive as to where we are right now. And then you, you go back and you realize that they're, they're not at all impressive. Um, and all of these 100% increases, 1000% 1000% increases are just you know, it's just because you're starting off from such a low base. And you know, the, the the terrible times that the tourism industry has gone through. So it's interesting that they have finally committed to a, a target, definitely. Um, but like you said, it's a low one. And is that a recovery? Are they, are they seeing things picking up? Yeah, maybe they're, they're being kind of quite cautious in that way. I think it's exactly that. I think you, could, you can read it two ways. You can say perhaps it's underwhelming and obviously the, the China factor is definitely impacting that. Um, also, the uncertainty of what's going to happen in the rest of the year. Long, long haul travel from Europe. We don't know. Europe's going to go through a very, very difficult uh, winter economically. Um, will will that actually curtail travel from Europe into Southeast Asia? We simply don't know right now. I think the other issue is something we've also talked about, Hannah, is that 
forecasting a few months in advance is very difficult when, when there are such short booking windows. And I think that's a big uh, factor for, for predicting anything right now is that looking two, three, uh, four, five, six months ahead, it's, it's, it's pretty much guesswork right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's interesting, you know, they're taking this cautious approach from Singapore, we know are cautious. Um, Malaysia also have also been pretty, they're almost kind of working backwards, right? They keep setting these very low targets and then exceeding them, <laughs> setting a target that's slightly higher. So they had 2 million and then they exceeded that and they raised it to 4.5 million. Um, and last week uh, there was press around the Malaysian tourism minister saying, you know, maybe we're going to reevaluate this in September because we think we're going to hit 4.5 million by then so it, it does beg the question and you know we've we've said this a million times Gary you know we are a bit fed up aren't we of all of this this visitor targeting maybe they should just give up on it yeah I think the spin angle that we we'll start to hear over the next few months is whatever those targets and whatever they hit or don't hit it will be a platform for 2023. I think we'll start hearing that a lot. Um, and we do know that Southeast Asia is playing catch up. You know, there's no question about that. It started late uh, and it's going to take time to, to, for demand to, to come back to whatever level that will be. Uh, but obviously the hopes, I think, as, as whatever happens in 2022 is that 2023 uh, will be much stronger. Absolutely. So let's move on to the second one and let's talk about Brunei. So this was one of your picks, Gary. What's happening in Brunei? Yes. So, right. So Brunei is going to fully open its sea and land borders from August the 1st. Uh, it's a country we don't really talk about very much, Hannah. It's the smallest country in the region, has the smallest population, just around about 500,000 people. It's on the island of Borneo. We overlook the fact that Brunei isn't fully open. I, I guess we, we assume that most countries in the region, well, all countries in the region are open in Southeast Asia, for sure. Northeast Asia is very, very different. Um, but Borneo is actually only fully opening its borders from the 1st of August. The normal um, requirements for reopening stand as they did in, in most countries in our region. You have to be fully vaccinated and you will require medical insurance that covers COVID-19 treatment. Fully vaccinated means you must have three doses of, of a vaccine. This, is, I guess, is mostly important in the region for Indonesia and Malaysia. There are a lot of business travel flows between, um, between Brunei and Indonesia and Malaysia simply because of uh, proximity. But, you know, it's also got a, a lot of uh, nature travel opportunities. And I think you will start to see more flights going into Brunei towards the end of this year. Uh, it was becoming quite popular with Chinese travelers, uh, nature travelers before uh, the pandemic. I guess that probably won't happen this year. But it'll be interesting to see how Brunei starts to position itself, um, because it is, you know, a land of nature, a land of rainforests and, and, and hiking and, and trekking and that kind of thing. It has an opportunity, I guess, to really promote that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move on from Brunei to Thailand. And of course, we can't go an episode without talking um, about Thailand. There are a couple of news stories that really drew our eye um, in the last week or so. And one of these, is, of course, is this tourism fee, this 300 Thai baht, Thai baht tourism fee, which is ostensibly going to be imposed on all foreigners um, at all um, ports of entry, so whether that is arriving by air, by land, by sea. And this comes up every now and then, um, and then the tourism ministry kick it down the road uh, a little bit longer. Um, and that seems to be what's happening um, again. So the latest update from the tourism minister was that although they have figured out the mechanism to uh, collect this 300 Thai baht from travellers arriving by air, and this is foreign travellers, they have not yet figured that out for land travellers or for sea travellers. 
And of course, there's been a lot of controversy around this anyhow, um, because airlines have been pretty unhappy about having to figure out this mechanism about how to collect it. And it caused a bit of controversy last week, didn't it, Gary? The fact that it's going to apply to all foreigners. Yeah, regardless of visa type. So even if you're a resident or you have a residency visa, you will still have to pay the, uh, the entry fee every time you, you go into Thailand. That is discriminatory pricing. There's no other way of, of describing it. Tourism fees, I think we're going to see more of these around the world simply because uh, governments need to recoup some of the revenues they lost over the past two years. The, the, the issue with this one is that it's pretty unclear what it's actually for. The government says that it's to go into a medical insurance fund um, to treat uh, foreign travelers. But, you know, most tra travelers carry medical insurance anyway. Um, so that seems a little bit nebulous as to the reasoning. I look back, and you, you said that this has been discussed for a while, and it has. And I think they first promulgated this at the start of the year. Um, in, the, in April, they said that they were going to kick it back to August to September. They weren't quite sure. Um, but I actually look back, and the reasoning for this, the legal reasoning, is the revised National Tourism Policy Act of 2008, which granted permission to set up a fund from the fees collected from foreign visitors. So this is something that could have been done any time since 2008, but is happening now. And I guess, you know, the reason for that, Hannah, is, is pure and simply is COVID. Yeah, but the interesting thing about this um, fee that I was reading over the weekend was that, you know, the travel insurance wouldn't cover COVID, actually, <laughs> this 300 Thai baht. Um, so yes, you know, you could see it making sense in if it were to cover COVID and, you know, you've got these foreigners who perhaps don't have the travel insurance um, covering that and, you know, Thailand have removed that requirement to enter the country. But the fact that it doesn't cover COVID really made me scratch my head. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, 300 Thai baht in the grand scheme of things is not a huge sum of money. It's not necessarily going to really off-put tourists, but it is putting a lot of noses out of joint airlines are going to have to figure out how to implement that and that's another system complication that they're going to have to have to do and you know they've quite frankly got other probably better things to be doing with their time to be optimizing um, rather than figuring out how can they collect money on behalf of the government for a fee that is not quite clear exactly what it's going to be used for. Yeah that's a good point because uh, you mentioned the airlines there and, and the uncertainty of how it will be collected uh, through through sea and, and land borders. Because from my understanding, Thailand wants this to be collected at the point of sale, at the point of booking, rather than upon arrival. Obviously, I guess that makes it easier in terms for the, for, the, for the government and for customs officials. But as you said, that places the responsibility onto airlines or, or ferry companies or, or cruise companies or whatever. Uh, I guess that may be the issue of, of why it's not, not in place yet. Yeah, it could be. I mean, in, you know leaving the tourism fee and let's let's go to one of the other um, big stories that came out of Thailand around pricing again um, and discriminatory pricing was this whole concept of dual pricing for hotels um, you know the fact that foreigners should pay more for hotels and locals should pay less and in doing so um, Thailand would be able to be seen not as a, a budget um, destination. I think that, that was the idea that the, the ministries were, were putting behind that. What's your take on this one, Gary? That's remarkable. I, I, I agree with you entirely that the tourism fee, the entry fee, I think we're just going to see more of that around the world, particularly probably in our region as well. Um, I think that's inevitable. And as you say, that doesn't have such a bigger impact. Discriminatory pricing on hotels is, well, I mean, if you want to create bad PR, then, then go ahead. That, that's a good way to do it. 
Uh, everybody will be up in arms about that. The hotel industry, the airlines, travelers. It's very, very hard to see who's actually going to be on board uh, to, to support that. You, you have to justify why you're doing that. And it doesn't really seem clear that they're, they're giving a clear justification, a clear reason um, for that policy. I, I don't believe it will go ahead. I don't think it's feasible. I don't really see how they can make that work uh, and actually uh, not just generate so much bad press that it actually would impact possibly bookings in future. Yeah, I mean, from what I've been reading about it as well, it just seems like it would be very hard to imp- How do you implement that? How do you track that? How do you enforce that? You know, especially in a world of dynamic pricing. Um, it's not just, you know, that written on a piece of paper, this is the rate anymore. That's just not how hotels work, do they? It's, it's all dynamic. It's about supply and demand. And how can you then handle that on two different levels? You know, not not only have you, you got this fluctuating rates depending on that, but there's a whole extra level of if you're Thai or if you're not Thai. It's, it's just too much of a headache again, you know. It's all of these system implementations and changes, and that would take a huge amount um, for even a small hotel to implement. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. The dynamic pricing <clears throat> point is really, really good. Um, it's it's a case of, of governments getting themselves in a terrible mess with this idea of quality tourism and high yield tourism. Uh, and actually, you know, it's, it sounds great when you say it, you know, as a, as a government minister, you say this at a conference or whatever, and it gets a lot of coverage. But yeah, as you said, the implementation of that is... It's near impossible, I would say. Yeah, I, I just think this will quietly fade away. Yeah, I think so. Well, let's move on to a country, like you said, Gary, at the beginning that we hardly ever talk about, and that is uh, Timor-Leste. So what's happening there? So Timor-Leste is looking, or it has been looking, to join the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, 10, 10 countries in ASEAN. It applied to join back in 2011, and um, that's been held up for various reasons. It did look as though it was, get, it was getting closer towards um, approval for membership just before COVID and then COVID happened. But now Timor-Leste is pinning its hopes on the fact that next year, the rotating chairmanship of ASEAN is in the hands of Indonesia. This year it's Cambodia. And Indonesia p- perhaps will be more favorable to trying to push through Timor-Leste's uh, membership, which will be, which would turn ASEAN into an 11-member uh, group. Great economically for Timor-Leste would get much more recognition, would get much more access uh, to trade agreements, to travel agreements, uh, and you know it could boost its tourism industry quite significantly. So uh, yeah, let's hope this one happens. I mean, this is something we, we don't talk about, Hannah, but we we actually spoke to people in Timor-Leste didn't we, a couple of years ago, and we were looking to do a show about it. So yeah, we'll we'll put that back on the agenda. Yeah. Exactly. Let's do that. I think it doesn't get enough press. And I remember at the time, and this was. When was it? Maybe it was towards the end of 2020 or perhaps even the beginning of 2021, because I think we were talking about vaccine rollouts. But it actually handled COVID-19 um, very well, at least up to that point. I can't quite recall how it handled it after the Delta wave, but it was doing very well. But of course, you know, it, its tourism industry is kind of fledgling. So it would be very interesting to see how they're doing right now. And, and as, a, as a side note, as a, an extra piece of Timor-Leste bonus news in the press last week was the fact that they wanted to start up direct flights um, between Timor-Leste and Batambang in Cambodia. <laughs> so it seems like a bit of an odd uh, flight connection route, particularly as Batambang doesn't um, even have international flights, I don't think, right now. But yeah, let, let's see if that happens too. Um, so moving on to Vietnam. And so Vietnam have announced that they plan to develop 301 traditional craft villages linked to tourism 
by 2030. Now, to me, this has uh, kind of hints of Indonesia's tourism villages. Uh, what's your take on this one, Gary? Yeah, absolutely. That's why we picked it. I'm not sure why 301. I didn't pick up on why that particular number was, was created. To be fair to Vietnam, you know, it has been looking at rural tourism and it's been very, very popular during uh, for domestic travelers. Uh, and, you know, it's such a big country. It has so many rural heartlands with a lot of ethnic minority villages that don't really make enough money out of tourism, community tourism, that kind of thing. Uh, but as you say, Hannah, it, it does really resemble the policy in Indonesia. Uh, and I guess maybe these two won't be the only countries. Maybe other countries will also follow suit and try and do something similar. Absolutely. Right. Shall we move on to Indonesia? And we've got a couple of stories um, for Indonesia, don't we? Yeah, this is this first one's a good one, Hannah. This is this is your pick. And this is Australia votes down a motion to stop fights to Bali due to foot and mouth disease outbreak. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and we all know how concerned Australia is with biohazards and, you know, how they're incredibly um, protective about what they allow in. You know, there was this, this uh, news story, wasn't there, this week about this woman who brought a Subway sandwich in from Singapore and was charged you know, thousands of dollars in a fine. Um, and so one of the latest concerns, I suppose, particularly farmers in Australia, is this growing uh, foot and mouth disease outbreak um, worldwide, but also in Indonesia. You know, farmers there are, are quite concerned about is that um, travelers who have been to Indonesia will come back to Australia and because they've been walking around in Indonesia obviously on the, they will bring back that disease um, into Australia and you know potentially threaten the cattle so that you know there were calls from some to even uh, stop flights between Australia and Indonesia that's not happened there have been um, campaigns I think Australian farmers have been offering to um, buy Australian travellers another another pair of flip-flops, another pair of, uh, what do they, I think, they, do they call them thongs there? I think so. And even the Bali Hotels Association and Melina Caruso, who was on the podcast not too long ago, um, flagged this one up to me, um, that they have even launched a CSR program called Leave Your Shoes With Us, which is, you know, essentially telling, you know, guests that they're welcome to leave their, their shoes with them and they will, you know, clean those shoes and then give them to those who are in need. You know, they've been trying to fight against this kind of negative perception that all of these travellers from Australia going to Indonesia are going to come back and they're going to bring foot and mouth disease. Interesting story, isn't it? Something that's, that's not COVID and not monkeypox. We're reading a lot about monkeypox at the moment. Yeah, foot and mouth disease outbreak, um, which actually in a few countries around the world at the moment, there's, there's concerns about this. So, And you're absolutely right about Australia, how it's very, very stringent on, on biohazards and, and, and imported things like that. So we'll have to watch. How that one follows through uh, over the next month or so. Yeah. So next up, we have another Indonesian one. We've got a few, actually. Indonesia made a lot of moves in, in the last week or so. And this is around pricing again, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, this this one's been around for a while. It's sort of come back into uh, onto the agenda again, and that's the pricing to visit the Komodo National Park. A lot has changed there. There's a lot of uh, development, a lot of commercial development in that area, in the, the National Park area. Some of it is related to uh, resort developments. Some of it also, nobody quite knows what's happening there, but they seem to be building this huge platform, a viewing platform, plus other things that we don't quite know about at the moment to view uh, these Komodo dragons. But the price is going to be hiked um, quite significantly. And the, the figure that's being banded around is 250 US dollars, Hannah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, this is a huge increase from what it is currently. So currently... 
Um, so that's about 3.7 million rupiah. Um, currently, the, the maximum price is 250,000 rupiah, and that's on a weekend. Obviously, there's a lot of unhappiness, again, from tourism stakeholders who were, you know, seeing potentially visitors um, staying away due to this high fee. Of course, you've got your conservationists in there as well in the mix. A lot of unhappy people. And it's just interesting that this this happened. It almost seems like it was done without a lot of consultation from the, the local tourism stakeholders there, just due to the fact that they're protesting and, and talking and complaining about this. And it, again, just reminds me of this whole Borobudur hike uh, that Indonesia was, was planning to impose and to, to really increase the, the ticket prices for people who wanted to climb Borobudur Temple um, in uh, near Yogyakarta, which was then walked back. Um, and I just wonder, are we going to see a walk back of this ticket increase as well? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say, I think, because Borobudur was slightly different because they were actually just resetting the price. And there were, again, there were differentiated pricing, wasn't there, for international tourists or, or for domestic tourists. Uh, but Kobudur, there's so much development going on there. That this is, seems to be part of something else, something that's bigger. Um, but, you, I mean, 250 US dollars is, is, is pretty, it's out of the reach of most visitors. Um, you, you know, there's only a select cohort of, of travelers from around the world that would be prepared to pay that. And our, our last Indonesia-related one is the fact that they have now um, imposed some booster-differentiated measures, including that if you want to travel outbound from Indonesia, you're Indonesian, you want to go travel out, you have to have had a booster dose. And a lot of this is just down to it's this kind of carrot-stick approach, isn't it? It's the fact that they have seen booster rates really um, stagnate and that they are looking for ways to incentivize people to go get that and you know they outbound travel is one of them the other is that they're now imposing the same kind of restrictions if you want to enter a tourist attraction or even a mall now you have to be boosted all just part of this drive but for me that's, that's kind of interesting and I wonder if we're going to see other countries across the region start to take those steps as well, you know, as, as booster rates start to kind of slow down. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? It's certainly a coming storm, and particularly towards the back end of the year when people want to travel, and perhaps over the holiday season. We're starting to see COVID rates increase in, in major parts of our region, and particularly in destinations that may open up and be a bit more amenable to travel uh, towards the back end of the year. You think of Japan. Japan had 150,000 cases yesterday. South Korea, 76,000. Australia also has a high rate. I think it's about 54,000 at the moment. They're urging people to work at home right now. So, you know, these new waves of BA5 and other subvariants are increasing. The issue about boosters, I think, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday, is what kind of boosters people are actually going to be given. Are they simply the original vaccines or are they more tailored towards the new variants? And I think most of those won't really become available quite yet. So, what actual value will booster vaccines actually have in terms of keeping infection rates down and perhaps even hospitalizations down? Mm, that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it comes down to the you know the mixing and matching of boosters. Is it as good to be vaccinated with a, a Chinese booster with Sinovac as it is to be Pfizer or AstraZeneca or Moderna or, or whatever else, an mRNA one? Um, so... As always, vaccinations complicate things. <laughs> yeah, they certainly do. But I, I, I think, you know, it's interesting that Indonesia is, is making this, these statements right now because I think it's something that we will see more of over the coming months. Agreed. Um, so let's come closer to home then, Gary. And um, 
Air Asia X. You, you want to take us through what happened there? Yep. I mean, this is a, a long-running story in many ways, isn't it? It's about cancellation of flights uh, because of COVID over the past two years and the reimbursement of those bookings or travel vouchers have been giving. There was, this, this has been running a long time because of the slow progress in terms of responding to customers' needs and to finding something that was uh, acceptable to travelers, you know, in terms of refunding or travel vouchers. We also know that AirAsiaX went through a very, very long period of restructuring. It looked at one point as it may even go out of business. Um, but now AirAsia seems to be, well, I would say it's on a bit of a, a, a PR campaign here to try and promote the fact that AirAsia X is starting to fly again, is starting to uh, claw back some of its roots and to generate confidence amongst its customers. It's actually saying that it's actually moving ahead much faster with those compensations for those cancelled bookings. Yeah, agreed. And I, I think it's interesting that they also mentioned that they are starting to refund the travel agents as well. And of course, travel agents, are some, uh, you know, particularly in Malaysia, a lot of them really were out of pocket, you know, if, if they were operating big group series tours using AirAsia X to destinations like Japan and Korea. They were then, you know, ended up being owed a lot of money um, by AirAsia X just because they have to pre-book those flight seats. And that, of course, led to issues with customers, them not being able to fully refund back the customers because AirAsia X was holding that credit. Um, so I thought that that was interesting as well, that they, they talked about travel agents. And of course, AirAsia X, you're right, you know, that they are going on this big campaign saying that they're reopening. They're saying that they're looking at flights to Japan, Australia, Hawaii, New Zealand, London again, Dubai, Istanbul. Um, so it's a lot going on there. Yeah, the Australia, Australia Perth route, I think, is reopening. That's, that was a popular route before pandemic. Um, I think we both took that, didn't we, um, before the pandemic. And New Zealand, I, I, was re I was hearing from somebody in New Zealand that they're offering very low fares into New Zealand, you know, undercutting the New Zealand airlines. So, yeah, that's, that's an interesting tactic to try and get people back on board. Yeah, I mean, for me, the London one is just fascinating. Uh, I think particularly as we all know that it failed before uh, but clearly they see some opportunities or some other ways to make that happen but then how that will happen versus the the current uk very chaotic aviation backdrop of heathrow limiting flights in and that knock-on effect across the airports in the uk it'll have to see is it is it london gatwick or london heathrow that they're going to be flying into i'm not sure actually i was just thinking that i think it's gatwick i, I have a feeling it's gatwick but i'm not yeah, sure it could well be uh, yeah but you're right it's uh they didn't have any success with that before and they they, they shut it down as you say kind of maybe they, they see new opportunities do they must see a new opportunity yeah perhaps more cost efficient uh a fleet now i think perhaps and let's move on to our last story then um so we'll go over to the philippines um and of course you know philippines new president new administration, new tourism secretary, Christina Frasco. And with that, there's always a new focus, isn't there? Um, so it's a new focus and it's not. You know, if, if we look, I think, under Duterte, it was build, 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 wasn't it? I think that was his tagline and it was all about tourism infrastructure. Again, it seems like the focus of the new administration is going to be on improving that infrastructure. And it was quite interesting because... Um, Frasca, the tourism secretary, said, while it's true that we do have available international airports at certain gateways across the Philippines, the reality is that many of these airports are simply not yet of the global standard that would put us on a par with our direct competitors in the ASEAN member nations. So it's kind of that admittance that Philippines has got a long way to go yet to be able to get those international airports up where they should be. And certainly, you know, that they're talking a lot about accessibility, a lot about infrastructure and 
that makes sense. You know, you you need to be able to get tourists beyond those main points of of Boracay or Cebu to the more far flung islands um, to really see that effect of, of, of tourism spend ben- benefiting the whole country. Yeah, 100% agree with that. As you said, the, the, the context is the, the new presidency and infrastructure is, is, is a big focus, as you said, was under Duterte and it will be again in future. The Philippines is just such a vast and dispersed country. It needs a lot of infrastructure development. But I thought the interesting point about this, Hannah, was the fact that they are saying that the airports need upgrading. Connections is another problem. If you fly into um, the Philippines, it's often difficult to get your connections or the connection times that you want. So that those flight frequencies and making it more convenient for travelers uh, to get to different destinations, I think that's really, really important. But I also thought the interesting focus here was also, it's going to be on the hard infrastructure, but also on the soft infrastructure as well, the, the personnel, the service levels, and a lot of different um, elements of service. You know, I think they referred to to Singapore and to Thailand, how they actually managed to make physical infrastructure work with soft infrastructure as well. I thought that was an interesting point because that's something we hadn't really seen before. I think Philippines has huge opportunities. Tourism was doing quite well there before the pandemic. It was growing quite fast. I think it will grow quite fast again. But yeah, they've got to find a way to integrate um, the airports and the the hard infrastructure with with the soft services that make uh, traveling tourism just much more convenient. Yeah, and the other interesting point that she also brought up was because she was a mayor and a mayor in one of the Cebu local government units, I forget which one, she, I think, has really seen the differences, I think, between what federal government's wanting and what these LGUs, the local government units, want to do and the different health policies and how all of these differing policies have impacted on tourism potential as well. And, you know, she's talking about wanting to try and sort that out. And that's been a major um, stumbling block. We've, you know, I think during 2021, 2020, when travel was starting to reopen, that was one of the major issues that the Philippines had with all of these different travel requirements, even just across provinces. So it's good that that's on her radar as well. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think everything they're talking about here is longer term. This is none of this is going to be quick fix. Um, it's going to take time. But the fact that they're, I think that they're talking in a more integrated way than perhaps the previous presidency does at least suggest that they're going to try and tackle this head on. Well, with that, that brings us to a close of our look back at the big stories of the past week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep, meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. And please remember, if you tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a quick rating and a review, that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today, and we'll both return next week. We look forward to talking to you then.